Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Eric Repair, the chef and owner of the three Michelin star Le Bernardin, New York City, knows a lot about cooking fish. But his new cookbook, Vegetable Simple, is focused, of course, on vegetables. Repair talks about balancing rigor and creativity in the kitchen and his secret to 30 years of success as a restaurateur. The main challenge of every restaurant, including us, is consistency because you can be great one day and you can be mediocre the other day, but 
it becomes a, a big challenge when you want to be great every day. Also coming up, we learn to make fluffy Japanese milk bread, and Adam Gobnik offers his five food heresies. But first, it's my interview with food and travel writer Yasmin Khan, who's covered the cooking of Iran and Palestine. Her latest book, Ripe Figs, explores the foods, flavors, and the cooking of the Eastern Mediterranean. Yasmin, welcome back to Milk Street. Hi, it's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you back. You know, we talked about your first book, The Saffron Tales, about Iran, and then Zaytun about Palestine. And now you're covering the Eastern Mediterranean in your latest book, Ripe Figs. So let's talk about the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, do you think about countries, let's say Turkey? I mean, uh, the Republic of Turkey was created just in the 1920s, and it encompasses all these different culinary traditions. So are there so many different regions and cuisines within Turkey that talking about Turkish food is, uh, well, it's not, it's not a complete idea? I think that's a great question. What I loved about my travels through the Eastern Mediterranean is I tried to join the dots a bit. You know, what this book is really about and what, what these recipes and stories are about and looking at the similarities and the threads that have really spread throughout that region where so many foreign, you know, occupations and empires have had their roots. I mean, Turkey, I think, is a great example. You know, the Ottoman Empire was such an influencing force on the cuisine of, gosh, so many European countries, Asian countries and Middle Eastern countries. But that region's also seen the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Venetians. Um, so, there's a medley of influence there. And, and that's why I was fascinated with just purely from a cultural point of view, but also from a culinary one. You know, one way to think about different cultures is, is breakfast, right? Because they all do it very differently. And you talk about breakfast in your book, for example, soup for breakfast. Maybe you could give me some other examples, you know, across Greece, Turkey, etc., of how people start the day. You know, what do they have for breakfast? It's really common in Turkey to have soup for breakfast. Um, there is a particular kind of lentil-based soup with tomatoes, and sometimes they put bulgur wheat through it, spiced with oregano and paprika and pulbe bear, um, which is a lovely pepper flake, which many people will know as Aleppo pepper. So I think that we might traditionally be used to eating eggs for breakfast, but things like menemen, which is a Turkish egg scramble with fresh tomatoes. Um, I mean, that's a great lunch or a great evening dish, you know, mopped up with some warm flatbreads, perhaps some pickles on the side and a salad. So let's do some more food. You talk about griddling fruits, and you can do that inside in a grill pan because you say that sort of poor quality fruits get a huge upgrade just by heating them on a griddle. Absolutely. Um, certainly, I think you have access to better fruit than I do over here in the United Kingdom. But, uh, you know, we all know what it's like. You kind of go to the market, you come back, you taste like a plum and it's, it's just a bit sour, you know, or a bit too hard. And, you know, so griddling them, just cooking them with a bit of sugar, if you want, or a bit of honey is just a perfect way to, I don't know, release, it softens them, but it also releases their sweetness. So let's move off breakfast, but before we do, uh, oatmeal. You know, I love oatmeal, and you have a great take on that. You know, I love oatmeal, but it can get a little bland sometimes. So what I like to do is to add some ground cardamom and some rose water to it. Now... 
Those two ingredients, I cannot tell you how that is going to elevate your breakfast. For a start, it fills your kitchen with this kind of I mean, it just smells like a summer orchard, you know, from the rose water. And then the cardamom is kind of so warm and spicy. Um, I I really recommend people give that recipe a go. It's so simple. And I mean, I guarantee it will blow your socks off. You know, a lot of the recipes in your book uh, have big flavors and they take something simple like lentils and then add preserved lemons and maybe a salsa. So you get this incredible contrast of flavors. You also do a, a spicy red pepper and walnut smash. You know, I love that term smash. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that because it's simple, as I said, but you get really big, bold flavors. That's right. You know, I mean, I think each of my cookbooks have had different levels of um, technique involved in them. But with this one, I really wanted to offer people recipes that were easy midweek meals that you could throw together really quickly, but that really packed a punch with flavor. And I really believe that if you just have a handful of good ingredients with some good spicing, you can really do that. It's just about knowing which combinations to use. So what, what kinds of flavors come to mind? You know, things that pair really well with lentils. Okay, well, cumin, cinnamon, paprika, you know, I would go with the warming spices initially and then perhaps add a oregano or thyme. And so, you know, you're using quite a few ingredients there, you know, maybe four or five spices. But, you know, the way that they're layered and the fact that they go together quite harmoniously means that the flavors that you're getting aren't overpowering. They just help accentuate the actual lentils. How has your cooking changed after spending time doing this book? Are there two or three techniques or recipes or things that are just part of your repertoire that were not there before? Mm, there really are. Um, you know, often when people think about food from that part of the world, they mainly think of the grilled meats. But what I was really interested in was all the, the bean and pulse and lentil dishes. And actually, I found those the ones that I've incorporated the most easily into my kitchen. You know, I use so much more paprika now than I used to, um, and so much more um, oregano and thyme. And I know these are classic ingredients that we all have in our kitchens, but I think once you start applying them in the amounts that they use in the Eastern Mediterranean, you see that you can really spruce up a really humble dish of beans, which just makes for a perfect, the quick and delicious meal. Um, and I think that's probably been my main takeaway. Uh, that and the fact that, oh my goodness, I'm spending so much more money on olive oil now. And I feel like with every book I, I, I write, I delve deeper and deeper into olive oil. Um, I don't know where it's going to end, but you know, I, yeah. <laughs> well, you, you're going to have a wine cave and an olive oil cave. You'll have the, you'll, <laughs> you'll have 25 bottles of olive oil. Um, so how does the travel change you? We've talked about food a lot, but you, you've talked to a lot of people. Uh, you've been in different parts of the uh, Eastern Mediterranean. Do you come away with this with a different view of food, of cooking, of people, of culture, of the world in general? Yeah, I think it's for me, that's what I love about travel, because it's not always easy, but there's always a huge amount of learning that comes with it. I think for this book, what struck me the most after my journeys through Greece, Turkey and Cyprus was that in a world where we seem to be kind of hunkering down on the divisions between us, when you travel, when you 
eat in people's homes, when you cook with people, when you break bread with someone who on the surface it seems like you have very little in common with, you always find points of connection and you always find areas of similarity. And I really love that, actually. Um, I really love feeling like we're part of a collective global community um, because it inspires me with, with a lot of hope. Yeah, Isabel, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure having you back again. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you again. That was Yasmin Khan. She's the author of Ripe Figs, Recipes and Stories from Turkey, Greece, and Cyprus. Right now, my co-host, Sarah Malt, and I will be answering your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television. So, Sarah, what is it you have in your freezer or your pantry that you're really embarrassed about you don't want to tell me? Well, my peanut M&Ms. Yeah, I know that. But besides that, what's the thing you've never told me about that's lurking there? Um, I don't know. I'm pretty pure. What can I tell you? Oh, come on, come on. No, I'm serious. I don't have, I don't have fancy. Okay, I am going to have to think really hard here. It really is just the peanut M&Ms. And I'm very proud of them, frankly. I mean, I had frozen vegetables, you know, frozen peas. Maybe you'd think that was horrible. Frozen pizza? I do have frozen pizza. Yes, I do. See, I knew. Okay, you busted, busted, busted. Good. You're normal. I like that. Okay, (laughs) Okay, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Alba. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from New Orleans. What is your question today? So my question regards mayonnaise. I've tried to make it three times and I've failed miserably. Oh. I've been using one tablespoon of lime, which is my acid of choice, one cup of oil, and one room temperature egg. So the first time I used avocado oil, the second time I used canola oil, And the third time, I used extra virgin olive oil, which now I know is a mistake. The consistency comes out really great, but it tastes super bitter. And I'm just wondering, what am I doing wrong? And also, the recipe has to be sugar-free, soy-free, and vinegar-free, unless it's apple cider vinegar. Please help. (laughs) Okay. First of all, what did you make your mayonnaise in? Did you do it by hand? Did you do it in the blender? Did you do it in the food processor? I have an emulsion blender. Okay. It sounds like you're getting the texture you want. The problem is that you don't like the flavor, correct? Yeah. You're right. You should never use straight extra virgin olive oil. You started with two other oils to begin with. And I wonder if perhaps they weren't so fresh. They might have been rancid. Oh. Yeah. That would be my best. And how do you know that? Smell it. Generally, when I make homemade mayonnaise, I use a flavorless oil. I find that that really is the best. I might just add a little bit of olive oil for flavor, but not blend Mm -hmm. it because it doesn't like to be blended. I'm not a fan of canola oil myself. I think it tastes like fish. Mm -hmm. Avocado oil I'm not as familiar with, but it's possible that wasn't quite as fresh. I would just go for a very neutral oil, and I think you'll be far happier. Chris, what do you think? I agree about canola oil. That would be not ideal. You said an egg. Do you using an egg yolk or a whole egg? The whole egg, room temperature. All mayonnaise recipes I know just use egg yolk, right, Sarah? But I've done it both ways. Did you say Ooh. lemon juice or lime juice? I said lime juice. 
Uh-huh. Mm. That's it. Lime juice can be very bitter mm. compared to lemon juice, which I think has got a smoother flavor. I would try lemon juice. Or you said okay. you could use cider vinegar, which wouldn't be terrible. And uh, how much would you guys use out of each thing? What would your uh, preferred ratio be? Egg yolk, a little water, tablespoon, a little bit of Dijon mustard, maybe a tablespoon of lemon juice, and a cup of oil, neutral oil. That would be yeah. my recipe. That sounds about right. Maybe I'd start with slightly less lemon juice. I don't know. Two teaspoons. Yeah. But one egg yolk will emulsify up to one cup of oil. So that's a fine ratio. And I don't think you have to lose the whole egg if you don't want to you know, waste the white. I would add the mustard, too. It's a great emulsifier, and it adds a really nice flavor. So flavorless olive oil would work? Sure. Yeah. You, you could get that. a refined, like a light olive oil or refined non-evo, non-extra virgin would be fine. Vegetable oil, flavorless yeah. vegetable oil. It's not bad. Yeah. You guys have been awesome. That's all I had for you. All right. <laughs> well, well, well let us know. Try the lemon juice instead and see yes. if that works. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Okay. Take care. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need help with a recipe, give us a call anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hello, this is Sharon Burnham from Roanoke, Virginia. Hi, Sharon. How can we help you today? Well, I am calling you back to report on my preparation of Emily Dickinson's black cake. Oh, yes. Mm. Oh, wow. Can you refresh our memory? Tell us what was the problem? I had called because several of the recipes had very different cooking times. The standard 350 versus a lower temperature of 250. And what did we suggest? You both went with the lower temperature and also recommended what one of the recipes used, which was to put a pan of water underneath to add a little moisture. And how'd it go? Oh, it was fabulous. Yes. So I baked them all in fairly shallow pans rather than loaf pans and spent about two and a half hours uh, baking Mm. them, and they turned out wonderful. Yay. What was the texture like? Was it like a fruitcake? Was it a little bit lighter than a fruitcake? I would say it was softer than a heavy fruit cake, but still very fruit dense. The fruit Mm. that I used was uh, dates and prunes and dried pears and apricots. Mm. So they were soft fruits anyway, and then they were soaked in brandy. And so the whole cake just had a delicious moistness Mm. to it. This sounds delicious. And since this was an Emily Dickinson cake, I added a little honey to the syrup because she has a lovely little poem about honey that I included when I gave them away. Oh, well, we must now hear that poem. I would be happy to read it. It's very short. The pedigree of honey does not concern the bee. A clover any time to him is aristocracy. Hmm. I like that. That's pretty good. Was it well-received? I bet it was. It was indeed. (laughs) I think this is going to be an annual tradition for me. Sarah, remind me, did we get any of the black cake here at Milk Street? No, we didn't. Sharon, I think we... uh, What happened to our cake? Yeah, really. Hmm. Well, now that it's perfect, I think you have to... Just a slice. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, could you send us the recipe? 
I would be happy to. Because I this is right up my alley. I like uh, old English-style desserts, so I'd love to make it. I really enjoyed it. One of the nice surprises, it calls for mace, and I mm-hmm. got the whole mace, which I ground myself, and it gave just such an interesting overtone to the other spices, cardamom, nutmeg, ginger, cloves, and cinnamon. Okay, this is going on my to-do list immediately. Great follow-up. We like it when things work out. Well, I appreciate your interest and your encouragement, and I'm not sure I would have tackled it otherwise. Well, good. I'm next. Okay. Oh, that sounds good. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, it's my conversation with Chef Eric Repair. That and more after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. 
A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most State Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Chef Eric Repair. His latest cookbook, Vegetable Simple, is a showcase for how to turn vegetables into the focus of a meal rather than just an afterthought. Eric, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. I was reading a little bit about your early years, and you grew up in Antibes, and then when you were nine, you moved to Andorra. I had to Google that because I didn't know Andorra was actually a country. Could you um, tell me a little bit about it? Sure. So Andorra is a small country that it's located in between France and Spain in the Pyrenees Mountains. It's about 60,000 people living there. And the official language is Catalan because it's part of the uh, Catalonia region. Mm-hmm. They have an ambassador at, at the UN and it's an independent country for a long, long time. You started out, I guess, training a to be a waiter, um, but you said you you did have an evening where you spilled quite a lot of food on a couple, so maybe that was not your ideal profession. Uh, well, actually, to be more accurate, I didn't really want to be a waiter, but I was in a culinary school, and the first year it, when you are in culinary school, in the program, you have to spend half of your time in the kitchen, half of, the, of your time in the dining room as a waiter to learn how, how to serve. And uh, I was supposedly excellent at being a waiter. And uh, at the end of the first year, they asked my mother to come to the school. And uh, they said to me that I would be the sommelier that that day and I would be in charge of the cocktails and the wine only. So I could show off all my talents on the front of my mother. And that day, a general from the French army came uh, and sat next to the table of my mother. And I started to take the drinks, went to the bar with the cocktails, and I dumped one cocktail on on the neck of the general. So I had to stop serving, and I had to pad the general and so on. And the teacher said, you have to go back to the bar, and and when you come back, you have to uh, serve the table. You have to finish the job. But unfortunately, there was an ice cube left on the floor from the previous accident, and I dumped the entire tray on the wife of the general. So I had to... um, Clean, clean a little bit and go back again to finish the job, supposedly. 
And I actually did finish the job, except that in my tray was a lot of water from the older <laughs> incidents. And I dumped that water again on the neck of the general, and he started to scream, and and that was it. I went. I, I ended up um, in a kitchen. <laughs> that's the best story I've heard in a long time. Um, you worked with Jean Robuchon. Um, someone told me he was a very down-to-earth guy who, who who felt he was sort of blue-collar. He he was just a cook. And was very down to earth. Is that is that true? Is that what he was like? Yes, it is true. He was a cook who happened to be the best chef in the world at the, at the time, but he always thought himself a craftsman, uh, an artisan. He was very humble, and uh, yes, he, he was very blue collar in his behavior. However, when he was in his kitchen, he was an amazing, amazing chef, an amazing commander. Great creative mind, very disciplined. And I have never seen a chef as precise as Robuchon in my entire life. And when you mean precise, what, what do you mean? What I mean by precise is in terms of uh, the details. The consistency was amazing. It was no difference in between the beginning of the night and the end of the night, Monday to end of the week. The attention to the detail was almost impossible to achieve. He was very hard on himself and very hard on the team, but we were able to create mini miracles, for instance. He had a dish that was called the gelée of lobster with caviar and cauliflower, and that dish was decorated with tiny dots that were surrounding the the bowl where the gelée was, and every dot had to have the same, exactly the same size, and the same distance in between the dots, hmm. every ball had to add 92 dots and not 91 or not 93. Hmm. So that's the precision of Joël Robuchon, the legendary precision that he had. Not only the, the presentation of the dishes, but also in the flavors, it was that precise as well. You know, I've always said about Le Bernadette, which is absolutely one of my favorite restaurants, that y- you... Um a lot, a lot of restaurants push the envelope, but don't pull it off. It, it doesn't make sense at the end of the day. It doesn't work. But when you do that, it actually does make sense. I mean, the, the, the whole thing on, on one level is very simple. On one level, the execution is incredible. Do you, could you t- just talk about that in terms of restaurants? Trying to do something that's, that's different, but you really got to know what you're doing and got to really deliver it to make it work. Well, the fact that Le Bernardin is specialized in seafood makes us already different. As you know, seafood is very delicate. It's very fragile. Uh, the, the textures of different fish and species that we are serving at Le Bernardin are, are very different as well. The flavors are very defined, depending on which fish you use and so on. And you have to be a great technician to handle... Uh, seafood and and cook it to perfection and also very creative in terms of finding whatever is going to go in a plate and that's going to elevate the qualities of each fish because I always say every fish has its own personality it's obvious when you think that a lobster is very different than a striped bass and a striped bass is very different than a dover sole and the dover sole is very different than a shrimp and so on. So we 
we really push the envelope all the time by really reinventing ourselves. And, and that is something that I think is the most challenging, reinventing yourself and keeping, obviously, the very high standards of quality, but consistency. And, and the main challenge of every restaurant, including us, is consistency. Because you can be great one day and you can be mediocre the other day, but it becomes a, a big challenge when you want to be great every day. You know, we, we've known each other for a few years. You know, I come to the restaurant occasionally, but we're not really, you know, close friends. We haven't spent a lot of time together. But the one thing, one moment uh, in your life that really struck me that I think told me all I need to know about you is after a Tony Bourdain passed and you were very private about that and didn't discuss it. Did you, is your sense of friendship related to your sense of Buddhism well, Buddhism is part of my life. Um, it's um, it's a spirituality that I I have developed over the years, and it's something that speaks to me. And Buddhism is interesting because it's a religion, it's a philosophy, and it's a science. Uh, this all all at the same time, and it's something that speaks to me. Now, a lot of People are doing great things in life and, and don't necessarily have a religion uh, that helps them to, to do great things. It's something that is very personal. Um, and to go back to the story of Anthony uh, Bourdain, I didn't want to speak about the last days that I spent with him because I thought it was very personal and it was not something to share with the public that sometimes as, and, and the media as well, that sometimes are right. very um, curious and, and do not respect the wishes of the family and so on. So that's why I, I, I have been remaining silent about that. I was just uh, impressed by that. Um, let's talk about your book. Um, first of all, let me just say loudly that this is not a chef cookbook. You know, because I always, when you get a chef cookbook, you always worry that it's going to be a lot of technique and 25 ingredients. This is, the, the recipes are simple, uh, just a handful of ingredients, uh, interesting, you know, a garlic soup with sage leaves. Uh, the first recipe in the book's popcorn. So y- you've done something very few chefs have done, which is to keep it simple. Yeah. I, I assume that was something you did on purpose. Right? Yes. I actually did it on purpose. <laughs> the idea was to go through the seasons and uh, come up with more than 100 recipes about vegetables and, and few desserts at the end. But the idea was to inspire people to shop and come back with vegetables that are seasonal and to prepare recipes for the family that are very simple and that pay homage to those vegetables. Uh, a little bit like the same style as Le Bernardin, we pay homage to the fish. Well, here we pay homage to the vegetables. And really, at the end of the day, when you think about it, when you want to make a vegetable that is so delicate uh, shine, you have to use simple techniques. And I wanted to demystify a little bit uh, cooking vegetables, and I wanted to inspire everyone to cook more vegetables. I realized that in my life, I'm eating more and more vegetables. 
And um, I'm, I'm not a vegan, I'm not a vegetarian, and I'm certainly not judgmental about people who eat meat and, and fish, obviously. Uh, I eat a, a bit of everything. But I thought it would be nice to have a, a vegetable book that is inspired by the seasons. You, you mentioned tempura, and you have a little trick, which is if you can't get the right kind of flour for this, you say just add baking soda to all-purpose flour? Yes, a little bit, not too much. <laughs> just a pinch. You got that from someone? Uh, yes, I got that actually from Jean-Louis Paladin, who was my first chef in America when I came in 1989. I worked at, the Jean, at Jean-Louis at the Watergate Hotel, and Jean-Louis Paladin was a pioneer in bringing nouvelle French cuisine in the U.S., and uh, he was my, my first mentor in the U.S., and he taught me that trick, and uh, it's a very good one, actually. <laughs> was he a little uh, more uh, lively than Bocuse? It was a very different kind of person? So I don't know Bocuse very well because I never worked for him, although Bocuse had uh, the reputation of being a bon vivant. I worked with Joël Robuchon, which was a very different person than Jean-Louis Paladin. And if I can give you an example, it's like going to a Catholic school, escaping and ending in a Woodstock uh, concert. (laughs) (laughs) So Joël Robuchon would be the the Catholic uh, uh, school (laughs) discipline, right? A lot of rigor. And Jean-Louis Paladin was an artist. He was extremely creative very original, very unique, and uh, very unusual, actually. Weren't there stories about him that, like, at 4 o'clock, he had no idea what you were serving for dinner? Yes. It was amazing because um, we would have all the ingredients that Jean-Louis would have ordered, or he would bring himself the ingredients at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, <laughs> and, and he would have no idea what he was going to do with it, and we would open the doors at 6 and in between four and six, he would write by hand the menu that he was offering that night. And it was very challenging for us to, to be able to create what he wanted uh, in a few hours like that. And he was changing his menu every day. He was that creative. I'm sweating now thinking about this. <laughs> but it was fun. It was really fun because he was, he was good sport. So it was an amazing experience for me. And, and Jean-Louis took me aside and he said, you know, you learned from your previous mentor, Joël Robuchon, who, who's genius. You learn a lot, but you have to open your, your eyes. You have to be inspired. You have to stop being scared of failure. You have to create. Go for it. I'm going to support you. You said you've been at Bernadette since, what, 92, is that right? 91. 91. So you talked about reinventing your, the food yes. over time. 30 years is a long time. Yes. But you keep coming back and doing great work. Are you still excited about that? How do you keep doing this? Well, it's not the same thing, but how do you, how do you run the same restaurant for 30 years? Yes. Well, being, being a chef and being a restaurateur, it's not a job. It's a passion. And when you have that... It's no effort to be involved in creativity, to be involved in reinventing yourself, to redecorate your restaurant, to change the steps of service, to 
find new flavors, new ingredients, new techniques. It's, it's something that brings tremendous pleasure. It's not work, although it is obviously technically and, and it's a livelihood. But when I come and I am creating with a team, I'm having so much fun. And, I, and today I'm the guy with the white hair in the kitchen. I'm the mentor. On top of it, I'm, I'm sharing my, my cooking wisdom with a younger generation and so on. I mean, it brings tremendous satisfaction. Have you ever assembled your staff at 4 o'clock and given them the menu and said, here's what we're cooking <laughs> before 6 o'clock? Not really, <laughs> but sometimes we want to create a special that we are going to test on a couple of friends. And really at 5 o'clock, I am not sure that we are going to be able to do it. And we play and we play and we play. And finally, by the time they arrive, most of the time we have something that is presentable and delicious. And we have some failures. And in that case, we don't serve it to the guests. We like it and the guests like it. Then later on, it goes on the menu. So you're a little bit Robuchon and a little bit Paladin. Right? <laughs> I think so, a little bit of, yeah, of both. Yes, both. I like that idea. <laughs> Eric, it's always a pleasure, and I, I really wish you all the best with Le Bernardin. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure to talk to you, too. Thank you. That was Eric Repair. His latest cookbook is Vegetable Simple. Eric Repair is a celebrity chef who really doesn't have much of an appetite for celebrity. He's embraced Buddhism and is soft-spoken instead of loud-mouthed. And like Joel Robuchon, he considers himself more of an artisan than an artist. So one hopes that this is where the world is actually headed, elevating craft above art. One feeds mankind, the other feeds just one man. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Japanese milk bread. Lynn, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. You know, a couple years ago, I went to Tokyo, and the most surprising thing was in a 7-Eleven store. They have thousands of them in Tokyo. And there's really good food there. I mean, like thousands of really cool things. <laughs> but they have little sandos, little sandwiches, especially the egg salad sandwich, which was fabulous. But it's on Japanese milk bread, you know, shokupan, which is this, you know, if Wonder Bread was really good, <laughs> it would be this bread. So let's talk about that bread, because it's so good. It's just the ultimate cushiony, billowy white bread. It's absolutely stunning. Is this something we can actually make at home or do you have to go to a bakery? It's actually quite easy to make at home. And sort of what makes it have that light, fluffy texture is something called the Tangzhong method. It's where you take flour, some of the flour from the recipe, and mix it with the liquid. In this case, it's water and milk. And you cook it over the stovetop until it thickens almost into a gel. It's kind of like a roux, but without the fat. And then you cool it and you add it to the dough. And what happens is that hot liquid gelatinizes the starches in the flour and allows the dough to hold more moisture without becoming too hard to work with. And that moisture becomes steam when it goes into the oven, and it really rises and gets that light, fluffy loaf. Now, is this something you can bake 
in just a regular loaf pan? I think in Japan, they come out perfectly square, right? They have special <laughs> pans for this? They do. So there's two different ways you can make it. One is in a Pullman loaf, which is sort of like that perfectly square shape. Or you can do it in a loaf pan. And the way they do it in Japan, and this is how our recipe works too, is you almost take little balls of dough and put them in the loaf pan next to each other. There are two Hmm. balls kind of snugged up next to each other in the loaf pan, and they kind of bake together, and you can tear them apart. It's almost like two giant fluffy dinner rolls in the pan. Sounds very cozy. It is. I mean, it's white (laughs) bread. It's amazing. Now, besides making the initial roux, as it were, that gelatinizes the starch, is the rest of the bread making, you know, business as usual? It's pretty straightforward in terms of mixing. It's almost like a brioche dough in which you add softened butter to the dough. And we're also adding some milk, uh, some eggs, so a rich dough. The whey that's in milk can kind of weaken the gluten and really make that soft, soft bread. We add a little bit of milk powder in addition to milk so that we can add a little bit more of that whey without making the dough too wet. So the method's a little different. So you're adding, you know, butter, some more fat. Anything else that goes in that's a little out of the ordinary? We found a recipe from a Japanese-American cookbook author named Sonoko Sakai, and she loves to experiment with heirloom grains or non-white flours. And she added buckwheat flour to her Mm. Japanese milk bread, which we really love the idea of just to kind of make it a little bit different. We chose to add rye flour to ours, which adds some extra flavor. It doesn't fully change the texture because we're only adding a little bit of that rye flour, but it adds some really nice flavor. Earthy, not as sweet, balances some of the sweetness from those other ingredients, but still really nice and light. Yeah, this is just a great bread, and I have no idea why someone doesn't make this commercially here in the States. Maybe that's a new idea. Maybe you should, <laughs> hey, Lynn, quit your job. Uh, it really has got a, a lovely, lovely texture. It's so soft and pillowy. and mm, It's my favorite kind of bread. Soft, fluffy, perfect for a sandwich. Lynn, thanks so much. Japanese milk bread, a recipe you can actually make at home. Thank you. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for Japanese milk bread at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik tells us his five food heresies. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats, but 
For me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Jane Bradbury from Weymouth, Massachusetts. If you're cooking any kind of a wet sweet bread, such as banana or zucchini bread, use a tube pan. Your center will always cook evenly and the outside will be done at the same rate. An angel food pan is even better because it's so easy to get the bread out. I've been doing this for years and never had any soggy centers or crisp outsides. If you'd like to share your own culinary tip or secret ingredient on Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's our regular contributor, Adam Gopnik. Adam, how are you? I am fine, Christopher. How are you today? You sound full of verve and energy. I am in an unusually reverberant state, I think, because I have the audacity of violation dancing in my breast. I can hardly wait. <laughs> the wicked idea I had has to do with the heresies of food. Now, you and I both belong not just to the practice of cooking, but in a sense to the faith of food. We both invest an enormous amount of our emotional life, and I would say, frankly, our spiritual life in the pursuit of food. And it's in the nature of every faith that humankind has ever created that it also creates heresies. <laughs> it creates inside the human breast these sneaking doubts that slowly over time grow larger and larger like a balloon inflating inside your soul until finally you cannot stop yourself from <laughs> spitting them out. I have no idea where this is going. <laughs> So you remember Martin Luther nailing his yes. heresies to the door of the church. I today 
want to share with you my five chief heresies of food. Well, at least you've consolidated your heresies more than Martin Luther. Yes, he had 40 of them. I only have five. But I promise you, heresies are heresies. They will shock you (laughs) and disturb you. My first heresy of the faith of food is that all olive oils are more alike than unlike. We spend an enormous amount of time sorting through Sicilian and Umbrian olive oils and comparing them to Spanish and Greek olive oils. And we worry about the butteriness of one and the pepperiness of the other. But the truth is that if you're dealing with anything that's a decent olive oil, it's remarkably like the next olive oil beside it on the shelf or in your pantry. Should I argue with you at the end after you've gotten through all five or now? You can argue now. This is not to say all olive oils are alike, but they are more alike than they are unlike in the sense that one can be substituted for the next with more ease than one might substitute uh, one vinegar, right, for the next. And the same is largely true of salts, right? We have fetishistic salts, pink Himalayan salt, fleur de sel, which is indeed my own Francophile favorite, molten salt and every kind of salt. And they do have a spectrum of differences, which we can taste and appreciate. But once again, one salt is more like salt than it is unlike the next salt. The only thing I would say is that there are olive oils that are yellow and buttery and fruity that are really quite different than the more astringent back-of-the-throat oils. So there are some differences that are fairly substantial, but you're right. For the most part, most olive oils are similar, I would say that's right. Are similar, are more similar. And that's not true of all range of food things. In fact, I would say butters are are not like that. And the the difference between a beautiful French butter from Digny and the American cultured butter, I taste all the time. And when I'm in the middle of making a beurre blanc or something, boy, it makes a big difference. So that would be my first pair of heresies. Here's a heresy that will speak right to your DNA, into your background, into your accomplishments. And I say this after 40 years of Thanksgivings. It doesn't matter what you do with a turkey. It remains a turkey. We can brine it. We can baste it. We can deep fry it. We can get a heritage turkey or we can get a butterball from the supermarket. And one turkey is remarkably like the next turkey. I have done every imaginable thing with turkey over these years. And at the end of that Thursday, when I present the turkey to my family, it tastes like a turkey. Well, there is an exception, though. I once cooked my neighbor's turkey. She grew her own turkeys. And these were, quote-unquote, heritage birds. The the breasts were so small and the legs so long, I had to hacksaw the legs partially off to fit it in the oven. (laughs) So I I would say that that, that is an exception to the rule. All right. But it's not, by your description, a very positive exception. It's not that this was the paradisical turkey. This was not the utopian turkey. It just was even a more troublesome bird than the normal turkey. All right. So that's my third heresy. All right. Here's my next one. This This will shock and appall all of the wine lovers, the canoisers, as we say in my family, (laughs) out there. And that is this, and I say this, someone who loves wine and drinks wine, the wine retailers have the wine ratings figured out. And the truth is this, that the $10 bottle is quite distinguishable from the $25 bottle. And the $50 bottle is distinguishable from and better than the $25 bottle. And the $100 bottle, with a rule of diminishing returns, so the $100 bottle is not as much better than the $50 bottle as the $50 bottle is than the $25 bottle. And past that point, past the $100 bottle, you do not actually have a huge range of 
purely sensual delight and improvement beyond that point. I know that that is a heresy. I offer it as a heresy, but that is the truth. No, I I would go farther than that. I I would say you don't need to spend more than $25 or $30, and you can get great wine for the $20 to $30. So there's no... There's no real reason to spend $100 or $75 on a bottle of wine, maybe with a few exceptions. But for $25, bucks, you can you can buy great wine. You can get wonderful wine, especially in this age of New World wines. Yeah. Adam, I hope you're not expecting to be awarded the Legion <laughs> d'Honneur. I think you just opted out of that. No, on the contrary. You know, I've just won it. You just won it? Yes. <laughs> I didn't know that. Uh, I thought you were teasing me. No, I no, no. I won it in the January <laughs> honors list. I got it from the French government. I'm a legionnaire <laughs> right now. I'm going to go to Paris with my family to collect it as soon as we can travel to Paris safely. We'll have a nice 25-hour bottle of wine to celebrate. <laughs> All right, but let me give you my fourth heresy, because I see that a couple of my heresies, in fact, did not strike you as heretical as I thought they would. My fourth heresy is this. Gnocchi doesn't matter. I've had okay gnocchi, I've had good gnocchi, I've had all kinds, and it really doesn't matter. Pasta, our life depends on pasta, right? If pasta were drained from our lives tomorrow, the hole it would leave behind would just be enormous in our kitchens, in our cuisines, and in our souls. But if we lost the whole pattern for gnocchi, if the recipe vanished tomorrow, it would be fine. No one would really miss it. Oh, no, wait, no, wait. <laughs> now, I had a few years ago, in Paris, I had gnocchi made right in front of me in brown butter with sage, so the classic you know, presentation. Right, right. And I have to say, I don't think I've had a pasta dish that was any better. Uh, now, could, could I live without it? I guess. But it, when it's good, it is really good. That was right. French gnocchi. Oh, whoops. As a legionnaire, <laughs> yeah, I'd say, well, obviously, French gnocchi <laughs> is going to be exceptional. <laughs> Let me offer you one last heresy, which is related to that. All right. Truth is, souffles, which are always represented in every American movie as the epitome of culinary excellence, souffles are absolutely easy. They're intimidating to people because they trail this legend behind them. But as a matter of cooking, they are a painfully simple thing to do. Pies and pie crusts, which are the down-home mom thing, those are hard. Hmm, it should be exactly point. the opposite way around. Souffle should be the folk dish that anyone can make, and pie should be the thing you have to go to Paris to learn. I, I, I would say these five points say a lot about you. I, I think they're insufficiently insulting. <laughs> well, what would be your example of a heresy that really has the sting and power of a heresy? Okay, I'll, I'll give you one, which, which goes to your Légion d'honneur. I think the idea that you need to be French-trained has zero value for the home cook. I think it's great for a restaurant, but I think it's done more to keep people out of the kitchen than any single thing I can think of. Because it it frightens people because they need to spend 10 years getting good knife skills. I would agree with you about that. And though I, in the few times in my life when I've had a chance to cook with one of the real, you know, grand generals of French cooking, I have been overwhelmed by the magical nature of all of their skills. I would agree with you that it is not... Not only is it not essential, it's not even transferable uh, as a set of skills to what we do now at home, particularly. But, you know, that's w- w- it, that speaks to the point I'm making about the souffle. The souffle has a mystique and a prestige associated that's to it. True. But the truth is, it's a simple thing to do, and we shouldn't over-mystify it. But I am grateful for the time I spent in Alain Passard's kitchen learning how to braise a pigeon. Now, those are, those are real skills, but as you say— we have very few braised pigeons in the the dailiness of our lives. 
Well, you, you came in with five heresies. You left with six. That's true. And so I think just post them on the door of the French embassy in New York and we'll be done. Absolutely. I'll do that after I collect my Legion. <laughs> Adam, thank you so much. Pleasure talking, Chris. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. You know, I don't agree with Adam about gnocchi, but I do agree that a $100 bottle of wine is really more about marketing than taste. Judging wine or anything else by its price rather than its quality is a sign of the times. And maybe that's why America is full of folks with indigestion. We can't help thinking about the price of our food, even as we swallow it. That's it for this week's show. If you tune in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, take a free online cooking class, or simply order our latest cookbook, Tuesday Night's Mediterranean. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tereski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. Intern, Emily Kunkel. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.